Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and Lewis Hamilton won the inaugural Qatar Grand Prix from pole position to close the gap to world championship leader Max Verstappen to just eight points. But on a weekend where the battle off track was arguably even more intense and controversial than on it, has Mercedes taken the initiative at the crucial time? I'm Ed Straw, and to answer that question and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, how are you doing? How are you enjoying Qatar? Uh, the Grand Prix was um, one of the weaker ones, shall we say, of uh, 2021, but the bar's been set pretty high. Uh, and as for the place itself, it's um, it's very Middle East. I, I can't say I can't say I'm enjoying it. It is uncomfortable for me being here personally. Um, it's obviously one of the more controversial races that have been added. I know that there are plenty on the calendar now that have got questionable um, situations, question very poor human rights records, and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend that it's uh, all fun and games being here, but we're, we're here to do a job, so have to be here. And yeah, as, as Grand Prix go, it was um, it was an inoffensive Grand Prix, but it, it wasn't spectacular. I think the circuit wowed the drivers more than it did uh, anybody else. Further proof, wouldn't you say, Mark Hughes, that the the good tracks for driving aren't necessarily the great tracks for racing? Yeah, that's always the way it is. It, it's that way with cars as well. It's the... Um, the Fans like to see cars sliding around. Drivers like to, uh, like to drive cars loaded with grip. So um, it's similar with circuits. You know, this these uh, long duration, fast corners are very very satisfying for the drivers. Really load the car up and give that sensation of lateral G, and then you have to commit to the the speed of the car. But yeah, it doesn't really do anything um, for the the visuals. And um, the 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 racing wasn't actually as bad as was feared. It was, but it was. Uh, rescued really by the DRS zone. It wouldn't have um, it wouldn't really have been uh, much going on had it not been for that. It, it enabled a few people that, that were out of position to, to make their way cleanly through the field, I, I guess. Um, that, yeah, I, I mean, it may be a one-off in, in terms of the venue. We, we, we're we going to be coming back to Qatar in 2023, but um, it, it may not be around here. So it, it, it's, I think it's a little bit unfair to criticise the track, really, because it wasn't designed to be a Grand Prix track. It's just, you know, up to, up to the standard um, technically. And so for um, commercial reasons, it's happened. It's happened this year. But it's, uh, yeah, it's about as much as we can say, really. It was an inoffensive Grand Prix <laughs> in terms of what was going on on the track. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the drivers have to say when they take to the, the new track a few years down the line, which is likely to be one and more in the city so it might not quite have the uh, the sweeps and the challenges of this track but that's something for a, a couple of years down the line but let, let's get into the race mark it was a dominant weekend for Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes and even without Verstappen's five place grid penalty there was no chance he was going to be beaten in a straight fight was there so why was Mercedes so strong it became increasingly strong as the weekend went on and the uh, track got grip here but um, coming here it was thought by 
the, the teams and by Pirelli that it was probably going to be marginally a rear limited circuit. And as it turned out, as soon as the cars started running, it became increasingly apparent that it was actually a front limited circuit, um, whereby it's the, 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 the front left tire in this case, which is uh, taking all the all the strain in which is the, the, the bottleneck of performance for the whole car. And given that the this is the 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 front end is the Red Bull's weaker end, um, and uh, rear rear limited circuits don't play well to Mercedes. Front limited ones don't play well to Red Bull. So that turned out to be the dominant thing, and it became increasingly so as the track gripped up. It, it became more and more front limited. And added to that, Red Bull had its rear wing problem with the um, the flappy wing, which necessitated putting on a um, a problem-free one, which is a bigger wing, and uh, normally you'd, one you'd only see in Mexico and, and Monaco, so that just made its um, it, its balance even uh, you know even less well suited to the demands of the of the weekend. It, having said that, it wasn't disastrously off the pace. It was um, four and a half tenths off in qualifying, which wasn't good. But uh, in the race, once it got onto the hard tyres in the second and third stint, it, it was it was not not bad actually, and they were setting quite a hot pace um, Hamilton and Verstappen because they sort of forced each other into a two stop quite early by how hard they were pushing, how hard Max was pushing, trying to get on terms with Lewis, and Lewis, how hard Lewis was driving to maintain the gap, and so that sort of pushed them towards a two stop. So they were they were setting a pretty hard, um, hard pace. You've managed to get through that without referring to flexible wings or flapping DRS uh, DRS wings. What, what's going on here? If you listen to Christian Horner, it's all about the flexi wings, isn't it? Yeah, and um, who knows what a Mercedes wing is, is, is actually doing and how it's actually working. Um, but uh, yeah, Christian suspected that it was um, flexing in Brazil, but that... Um, the, the the knowledge of an imminent um, sort of experimental flex test here had, had um, caused them to back off on that, and uh, Christian was quite um, satisfied that uh, they were running um, per perfectly legitimately here. Um, Mercedes, on the other hand, insists the wing is absolutely identical; nothing has changed whatsoever. And so, you know, I don't know, but if you look at the the evidence of the the, the speed traces. It <laughs> It's very very small. If if they if they did have a flexible wing in Brazil, it doesn't even start to explain um, the similarity of performance between the two cars in Brazil and then here. In that the the, the gaps about the same, um, with a little bit less engine um, effect because they weren't running the super new monster engine that they had in Brazil. Um, that's being kept for. Um, uh, for Saudi, and this this being a less power sensitive track, they put the power unit four back in. So there was a little bit less raw power involved in it. But in terms of the aero profile, marginally a little bit. Um, they, they lost a little bit, but really nothing that would, could be, could be explained by um, some extravagant aerodynamic um, bending or flexing. This is what happens when you have a really close championship fight, isn't it? They all start accusing each other of all sorts of things. What do you make of it all, Scott? There's been so much said about this over several weeks now. Uh, well, I think Mark covered it quite nicely from the point of view of uh, when you try and cut through the noise, 
and just explore what data exists, I'm not seeing what Christian Horner is seeing. And they're, they're pointing at all sorts of things, like these um, scuff marks or score marks, whatever they were calling <laughs> on the, the rear wing end plates, which just Mercedes had a lot of fun with. Andrew Shovelin seemed genuinely baffled when he was asked about it on Sky. And uh, Toto said that, it, it, Toto asked us, he was like, well, what can you see in the photographs? Because all I can see are, all, all I can see are like it's, it's some, some tiny marks that don't show anything. He says that, they're, that Red Bull are seeing ghosts, basically. So, I don't know, a lot of the off-track stuff this year has been controversial and fun for a little bit, and then it quite quickly gets boring, um, just because it becomes so repetitive. So, the way I see it is, if Red Bull has serious suspicions, which it seems to have, and there is a genuine concern and apparently evidence that the Mercedes rear wing is exhibiting illegal behaviour, absolutely up for Red Bull protesting. That's what the system, the, 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 there are mechanisms in place for them to do that. It's the right thing to do. If Mercedes are running something illegal, they should absolutely be found out and they should be stopped from doing it if not punished accordingly. But if Mercedes aren't doing anything illegal, then all these implications and subtle accusations or indirect accusations, they're, they're distracting from the sporting contest, which is obviously absolutely phenomenal at the moment. So I find it a bit, I find it a bit tedious sometimes. And I just, I just think the backtracking and, oh, actually everything now because of these load tests, which don't even have any, um, they don't even form part of the regulatory requirement here. So, if, if the argument is that Mercedes hurriedly changed the wing in anticipation of these new tests because they feared failing them, that's nonsense because it wouldn't have mattered if they failed the new tests anyway because they, they only have to pass the original tests here. So I don't really think that theory holds water. I don't, like I said at the beginning, I don't really see the evidence that Red Bull's seeing. So it just feels a little bit of a convenient way of backtracking out of the intensity of the accusations from Brazil and then sort of letting the matter die, but creating this image of the matter being resolved in Red Bull's favour when actually kind of like nothing's really happened. I could be wrong. Mercedes could be massively illegal. But looking at it at the moment, that, that's my interpretation of it. Yeah, there's an element of put up or shut up when it comes to this sort of thing. If you want to protest it, then you can protest it. But until that point, we have to accept that the wings as inspected are legal. And make no mistake, both of those teams will be pushing the limits when it comes to what flexibility they can get away with. There's no question about that. But let's move on to Max Verstappen, Scott. It's never good to be beaten into second place, is it? But actually, all things considered, should he be relatively satisfied with the damage limitation job, given that he had to come through from seventh on the grid, especially seeing as he grabbed the fastest lap point too? Yeah, I think absolutely he should be pretty satisfied with his uh, with his Sunday. It's actually probably a better outcome than he'd have ex might have expected without the penalty because the way the race ended up playing out and the gaps that appeared throughout the field, it was already leaning very nicely towards Verstappen having that free pit stop and just being able to go for the fastest lap and bonus point, whatever happened behind the potential spoil in that was going to be Valtteri Bottas and whether he had an option at some point to go for fastest lap, whether Mercedes could could use that option for him. But obviously Bottas got um, wiped out of being able to do that. And I'm sure we're going to take a trip to Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner at some point in this podcast and discuss that. But that basically 
removed any obstacle to Verstappen getting fastest lap. Hamilton was never going to be able to go for it. He didn't have the freedom that, that Red Bull had to, to, to do it. So I don't think in a normal Grand Prix without any of what happened in qualifying and the grid penalties for, for Verstappen and Bottas, that that plays out in a way that allows Verstappen to go for the fastest lap that easily. So I think probably in a normal situation, he's coming out of here having lost, having had seven points taken out of his lead. Instead, he's only had six. And it might sound like splitting hairs, but this championship's crazy close. And we've got, what, eight points in it after 20 races. One point could absolutely make the difference at the end of the season. So I think Max could be pretty happy with that, um, especially as kind of undone something that I, I don't, I don't know if I'd call it a weakness of Max, but it's not the first time we've seen him punished in qualifying for a yellow flag offence. And I think it's, I think it can be difficult to see the physical flags on out, out, out to the side, um, especially as you never know, his eyesight might be drawn to the fact that there's a stopped car on the right-hand side of the track and that's where his focus lies. But with that in mind, I think it's entirely reasonable to see a stopped car and assume that that's going to be a situation for yellow flags or double-waved yellows. So I just think it's a little bit like Mexico, what was it, a couple of years ago when, when Max was just... I don't know if petulance is the right word, but just that moment where he sort of digs, digs his heels in a little bit and just decides, I know best here, I'm cracking on. And he just picks up a needless small penalty as a, as a result of that. So I think he made life harder for himself than he needed to, but fair play to him because he did a brilliant job on the opening lap and then a very measured start to the first stint, which set him on the path to that damage limitation job. Yeah, I think that's seven second places he's taken this year to back up those nine first places. He's been pretty good getting the results on the, the less competitive weekends as well. And that's why it's been such a formidable championship challenge for him. All the momentum over the last two races has been Lewis Hamilton. But still, Max Verstappen has the lead in the championship and still a very quick car. So he's still very, very much in this championship. But Mark, looking at, at the penalty in question, do you think it was a reasonable one? There were some mitigating factors. It was a little bit chaotic in terms of what lights were showing, what flags were showing the understanding for everyone of what was going on. Obviously, Valtteri Bottas was done as well. Carlos Sainz was investigated, but got away with it. Do you think that was all the right outcome? You can't really mess about with the yellow flags because they, they, it's, it's for safety. So you can't sort of judge, well, it wasn't a very serious yellow flag or it was a very serious... The, the yellow flags are there for a reason. So, yeah, if you fall foul of that rule, you, you, you're, you look, you're looking for a penalty. So, yeah, as it turned out, the, the, the way that the, the yellows... W came on was uh, haphazard and it was unlucky that it, it happened where it did and affected those drivers that it did but having said that it's it's a yellow flag situation um, so you're unlikely not to be penalised if you fall foul of it. It did seem to be a little bit untidy Scott you spoke to Michael Massey uh, not so long ago did he kind of explain what was going on there because it seemed there was almost an attempt to let that qualifying session play out that caused some confusion. I haven't completely got a handle on exactly what went on there. Um, I wouldn't say it was. I, don't, I wouldn't say we've had a huge amount of clarity offered. To to, to be honest, um, Michael was very keen to defend the marshal that got declared a rogue marshal by Christian Horner, um, and he wanted to make it clear that he felt the situation was handled in completely in accordance with the with the sporting code, but. I think the problem is that it, it, it was it was quite messily handled. So Massey said that the flag marshals are responsible for both the physical flags and the operation of the light panels, not him or anyone in race control, but they can be overruled, obviously. But the 
there was there was in a sort of erratic nature of the red flags uh, the yellow flags appearing sorry so for example Vettel in, Vettel Sebastian Vettel encountered double waved yellows twice um through turn 15 which was where Gasly went off initially and broke the wing and then exiting the final corner when Gasly was on the right hand side of the track moving slowly down the start finish straight and these double waved yellows were communicated via the trackside light panels but then only a single waved physical flag was being shown by the time Bottas exited the final corner and Gasly had almost come to a stop by this point on the right hand side and that single yellow flag was also in operation when signs approached which was just after Gasly had stopped completely. Now I understand there's obviously going to be a little bit of a delay between the car coming to a complete stop and it being escalated from a single yellow. So it was then escalated to a double waved yellow only by the time Verstappen reached the start finish straight and he was the last one in the queue so he was the only one affected by the double waved yellows. Now this, this display is a, does look erratic. It could be explained by a couple of things. First, how the marshals were judging the risk posed by Gasly's limping car as he moved round from turn 15 to the start-finish line. You know, what speed he's going, where he is on the track, what room there is, whether the car behind is going to have to navigate a corner or just go in a straight line. So I can see why, as he then moves through the different marshalling sectors, that could be judged either a single-waved yellow or a double-waved yellow situation. The second fact is, is that because I think he passes different marshal posts, there are different marshals, different human beings, deciding how to handle that situation, so there could be a discrepancy there. So that's my interpretation of it, having reviewed a lot of the footage. I don't think we had a great explanation from the FIA itself. Um, I'm not going to pretend like it now makes total sense to me, but I can at least partly rationalise what happened and, and, and how it happened. And ultimately, as Mark said, it's a safety issue. Whatever flag you see, you should respond to. Drivers shouldn't be second-guessing whether that flag should really be out. You see the flag, you react to it, you slow down. And we can argue about what elements of it should or could be improved, but the fact is I think the penalties that were applied... There, there was no argument against uh, applying them. Yeah, you've got to be hardline on those things, unfortunately, even if it is a little bit unlucky for, for some of those involved. But Mark, Scott briefly alluded to uh, to Christian Horner criticising the, the rogue marshal. It was an amusing little footnote to this race, wasn't it? He was summoned to the stewards for violating the FIA International Sporting Code. So what happened there? And is the FIA perhaps drawing a bit of a line in the sand, given the very many controversial off-track comments being made by, you could say, both of the team principals involved in this title fight. Yeah, there's an element of propaganda in the, the well, throughout the season and, and well, this season in particular as is, is, is Red Bull have, have got themselves in a position to fight for the championship. There's been an element of propaganda from both sides, from Toto Wolf and from Christian Horner. And yeah, when it spills out, he, he was genuinely frustrated at events and he got asked immediately in the aftermath of it, and his frustration played out in front of the TV cameras. So, yeah, the FIA have, um, took a dim view, as you say, and he's apologised and he's um, made an offer to um, take part in some marshalling conference or that he's a stewarding program. And so that happens in January sometime. So, yeah, it's it's... It's something and nothing really. It um it just it just a little another little marker that um 
the pressure's very much on on both sides and tempers are, are getting a little bit frayed. Yeah, that's the thing that you have to read into all of this stuff, just how hard it's pushing people in terms of just this championship battle has been relentless from the start of the season. In fact, another controversy related to this, Scott, the driver's briefing on Friday night, that got pretty lively as the non-penalty for Verstappen into Lagos was a, a big talking point. Of course, Mercedes had petitioned for a review of that incident and Toto Wolff said it was on a point of principle rather than an expectation of a penalty for Verstappen. That was rejected on the grounds that the, the new evidence... Verstappen's onboard was certainly new, it was relevant, but it was crucially not significant, so they didn't actually properly review it. Question from Ben Lidford from the Race Members Club, asked if this has set a new precedent for what counts as fair racing, could it lead to dirty driving, which could make F1 look silly? Why has the FI not yet clarified the rules around what counts for fair racing, and isn't it a bit silly they haven't done so? This was at the heart of that driver's briefing argument, ultimately, wasn't it? It was, and you, I could, I could answer Ben's uh, question, various questions, very, very simply. Um, yes, it's set a new precedent. Yes, it could lead to dirty driving. I've got no idea why they haven't yet clarified the rules, and yes, it's a bit silly that they haven't done this because the, the, this is exactly what a bunch of drivers were saying after the briefing. And Michael Massey was a little bit dismissive of this, which I thought was surprising on the one hand, not so surprising because I understand he's going to be protecting his position and um, not wanting to be drawn too much into, I guess, what he considers hyperbole from various drivers. So that's not, it's not surprising in that sense, but it's surprising in the sense that he was basically just like, oh, I wouldn't say lots of drivers were saying this. It was only maybe one or two or, and saying, that, oh, it's the drivers that disagreed with their interpretation of it that had the problem. But every driver I spoke to, apart from Max, basically, has an issue with what happened. They believe it has set a precedent. They believe that it now shows that if there's runoff, especially if there's runoff, you can just run the other car four wheels off if they're challenging you on on the outside. And Massey actually alluded to the presence of the runoff instead of gravel as potentially being significant. But th that seems to me to be a bit of a departure from what's always been said before, which is that the consequences of the incident don't, don't determine the outcome in terms of when they investigate it or whether they consider a penalty. So this is what is maddening, and this is what the drivers, I think, are starting to get fed up with. They, they keep claiming these different things, and they keep saying that they want to establish a framework for the rules of racing, but they keep shifting things. And the more people I speak to, whether it's drivers, team people, observers, ex-drivers, no one wants the racing to be over-regulated, but we've ended up in a point where the FIA are trying to regulate it in a sensible way and establish what is and isn't allowed because that makes it easier to police in theory. Now, in an ideal world, that sounds lovely. Everybody knows what they can and can't do. But the problem is they've created this world where they want this complicated framework to exist to police the rules of racing. And then they keep tweaking the framework and no one seems to really know what is and isn't allowed. And I heard a few of the drivers were very vocal about it and Speaking to a few of them afterwards, I thought it was quite telling. You know, George Russell spoke very eloquently about it, not knowing what was allowed. Assume that what happened, what Max did, is now, you know, everybody's free to do it. So then afterwards, after he gave this very eloquent answer, which I'm not doing a very good job of um, replicating here, but then Sebastian Vettel came along and I said, you know, Seb, George has talked to us about this. He said basically lengthy discussion but no outcome. And as I was saying this, Seb just started to sort of crack a smile and start to laugh and I just said I'm 
judging by your reaction, I'm guessing that's true. And he said, George is an intelligent young man. He was clearly paying attention. Um, and then Carlos Sainz, the same thing. Asked him, said George said this. Sainz, massive grin on his face. Says, I agree with George. Also, he did go on to give quite a long answer. And then at the end, basically said, F1 and the FIA have a certain way of viewing it in terms of every case is different. And then he said, but as a driver? And then he just smiled, stopped talking and walked off. So there's clearly there's clearly discontent among the drivers. And it's all well and good saying the driver shouldn't be doing the regulating. But when drivers are going on track and they claim to genuinely not know what's allowed, then there's clearly a problem with the regulation. Yeah, there's no question about that. We've talked before about there has to be a philosophy about what you allow and don't allow. We tend towards the let them race principle, as we've argued before on previous podcasts when there's been controversial incidents. But the erraticness is just ridiculous. You see the Austria ruling about how far alongside you need to be to be guaranteed space. That didn't seem to apply at uh, Interlagos. The bottom line is that the stewards, I think, just let that go on a, on a completely unofficial no harm, no foul argument. And there was a sense of natural justice because ultimately that incident didn't decide the race. Hamilton got passed anyway. So they want to shrug it off. But of course, they can't say that, can they? So now you've got in a driver's briefing, probably Michael Massey having to tie himself in knots to justify something that is not defensible and it's not coherent. And then the driver's finding it very, very easy to explain why it's uh, it, 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 it's all a nonsense. Mark, what do you make of it? Do you, do you think this is making any sense? The inconsistencies come from the infinity of ways that incidents are different to each other. So when the stewards try and take that into account, they get accused of inconsistency. It's not. It's the fact that reality is inconsistent with precise wording. That's just That's just how it is. And if you try and put a precise wording framework on every situation, you end up contorting yourself in a ridiculous quarter, and that's where we've arrived at. So it was always going to happen one day. <laughs> and so it's it's a nonsense. The system's a nonsense. Yeah, I agree completely with that. And it's doubly stupid when what their ruling is directly at odds with what's very clearly in the, in the wording of what they've done. So it's, it's just a it's just a complete mess. We've complained about this before and this is just building isn't it and what I just hope is that the world championship isn't decided on some kind of incident like this because the trouble is you let drivers do certain things they will have to drive to the regulations they are obliged to so yeah they don't know what they're going to be doing and there's, there's going to be another reckoning on this at some point it's uh yeah a, a, a tremendous mess that uh, I think is partly of the uh, the FIA's own making there's lots more to talk about from the Qatar Grand Prix, but first, just going to talk about our podcast sponsor, NordVPN. Now, what is a VPN, I hear you ask? Well, it's a virtual private network. In simple terms, it's a way to protect yourself when you're online. You can hide your IP address and you can set your virtual location to access geolocked websites, which means you can get around some of the problems that sometimes can deny you safe access even to essentials like email and social media. A VPN is an essential tool of the trade. Myself, Scott and Mark are all keen VPN users, given our travel. I did try to work out how many Wi-Fi networks I've been connected to over my past five weeks in the Americas and in the Middle East, but uh, I lost count 
account some weeks ago. It is a lot. But with a VPN, you're safe every time you log into public Wi-Fi, whether it's in a hotel, coffee shop, airport, media center, restaurant, whatever. That's why if you care about network security, it's essential, even if you don't use quite as many Wi-Fi connections as I have in recent weeks. That ability to get around blocks on things like email and social media in the occasional troublesome country was the original reason I got a VPN. But over time, I've realized it is even more important for security and encryption. Online security is something you need to be confident of, which makes NordVPN a must-have. And most importantly for me, it's as quick as Christian Horner keeps saying a Mercedes W12 is down the straights. And that's important because some VPNs can make life difficult when you need high-speed internet. But you have no problem with NordVPN, it's seriously quick. That's exactly what we're using for our connection now. And the secret of it is nothing to do with flexible wings. Instead, it's about clever technology such as encryption tunnels, which are key to your secure connection. The best news is that there's a special Cyber Month deal available for NordVPN. Head to nordvpn.com forward slash the race, and that's the race with no hyphen, or use code the race to get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan, as well as the bonus of one month free. This is a limited time offer, so you better be quick. The price for the two-year plan has dropped from $89 to $79, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to nordvpn.com forward slash the race right now to sign up. And now back to Qatar. Mark, 2,675 days since the last time this happened. Fernando Alonso ascended the podium in a Formula One race with his third place for Alpine. A little luck along the way with Valtteri Bottas suffering that puncture while in the mix for that position and a late virtual safety car that slowed the charging Sergio Perez's progress. But even so, this was not an outrageously fortuitous result, was it? No, I mean, he qualified very well, uh, very strongly. And yes, he, he got um, a couple of places promoted from the, the yellow flag penalties, but uh, he, was, he was brilliant right from the start. His um, first two corners were fantastic. Just the, you know... The sheer desire, the sheer cunning, you could see the way he placed his car. The car control as he rescued, you know, the, the big sort of slide he'd got in, in going around the outside in turn two. Um, the ruthlessness and, you know, putting Verstappen to one side because it would have interfered with his move on um, Gasly. And then, yeah, it's just his control of the race after that and his awareness of what's going on. You'll have heard him. Um, radio to the team that uh, Ocon, who was a couple of places back, should delay Paris and defend like a lion, pretty much like um, Fernando had in Hungary to in, in help ensure um, Esteban's win there. And yeah, it's just it was a, it was a brilliant performance. It was I think uh, we, it, James Harvey asks was it his best since he's coming back? I think it's it's up there with Hungary. The circumstances were. Such that I think um, had the first corner been different, it was perfectly feasible that Alonso would would have won that race. It was just that he was the wrong side of all the incidents, and Esteban was in a better place. But it was um, just a multifaceted Alonso at his very best. It was a fantastic performance, and yeah, he might not have got the podium had um, Valtteri not got the puncture and had um, Checo not uh, being delayed by that VSC right near the end um, but you know that's just how that's just how it panned out and uh, it was certainly nothing um, it wasn't random it wasn't a random result the Alpine was good around here for reasons are probably not quite that clear on and but you know it was a it was a decent car and um, Fernando maximized it it was absolutely um, a plus performance 
Yeah, and he was delighted after the race. He talked up his own improvements, not like Fernando Alonso to talk up his own driving, but at least he can back it up, unlike uh, unlike many drivers. But he said he's at another level compared to where he was earlier in the season. It's been a really successful comeback for him. And great to see him back on the Formula One podium because there was a very real chance we'd never see it again. I mean, that 2014 Hungary, second place for Ferrari in 2014 Hungarian Grand Prix, the last time he's been on an F1 podium. I know he missed two seasons, but that's a lot of races without a driver of that calibre on the podium. Absolutely astonishing. And we should say Alpine are now 25 points clear in that battle for fifth in the constructors with Alpha Tauri, thanks to Ocon finishing in fifth place as well. And Ocon was pretty happy after the race. Uh, he reckoned he cost Sergio Perez about three seconds when Perez was coming past him. And of course, Alonso took third place by just under three seconds. Therefore, Esteban Ocon's done a mini version of what Alonso did in uh, in the Hungaroring, uh, he, he reckoned. But Scott, let's, let's move on to you. You did threaten Valtteri Bottas sympathy corner obviously he had a pretty dreadful first minute or so of the race but he was on target to salvage a podium wasn't he before he had that puncture yeah Bottas basically fell foul of the usual thing that catches him out which is the sort of immediate close quarters racing um and he got a slightly bad start as well which which didn't help and then he just ended up in the middle of other cars. He had a snap through the first corner. Then he ended up on the wrong side of someone again. And it was just it was just a bit of a mess. And he found himself outside of the top 10. But actually, to his credit, a lot of the time we see Bottas get stuck in DRS trains and then never really make much progress from there. But um, he actually picked them off one by one quite nicely once the field started to spread out. And he's he, he then still had the tyres to to, to un, unleash enough pace to work his way into that podium contention. So I think without that puncture, I think Bottas would have finished third in that Grand Prix, which would have been would have been a very good recovery from where he started, let alone obviously where he ended up on the first lap because of his own errors. So, yeah, I it's, it's difficult. It's, it's like every trip to this corner on this podcast. You sort of half of it is you're just like, oh, well, you know, Bottas is a bit unlucky and then he's done quite well in the circumstances and then you realise that he's probably in that slightly difficult position by his own making anyway so you can't have you can have sympathy but too much sympathy and and I think that's uh, that's Valtteri Bottas's F1 career in a nutshell and of course the fact that he did retire one of a number of drivers to have punches the two Williams drivers Lando Norris was another one that means a game for Red Bull in terms of the constructors championship this weekend with Sergio Perez finishing fourth and Verstappen second so that championship is still very very close as well but Scott Lance Stroll he managed to make a one-stopper work as well it wasn't only the Alpines that managed to do it he came home sixth behind uh, Esteban Ocon that's his best result of the season so so qualifying not bad but not not stunning but a really well executed race from him yeah he was really happy um he, he said um he believes he's had plenty of as good races and if not a few better than 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 this this season it's just the underlying performance of the car hasn't been there so it hasn't yielded a result like this but he did um he, he was just delighted with the with the outright performance that the car had in in the grand prix to to be able to race these cars and and yeah either overtake them uh, on track or or to utilize a better strategy and actually get ahead that way by using clear air and stuff like this so it was just as you say, very well executed from driver and team. Some some proper pace in the car, tapped into very nicely from Stroll. He, he's he's good at he's good at these these kinds of drives where 
he just sort of let him get on with it. He doesn't really get stuck. He doesn't his head doesn't drop. There's nothing quirky like a you know a bit of rain or something like that to catch him out. If he can just like get down to business and and focus, you see just how capable a Grand Prix driver he is. I on it's his best result of the season. I know he said like I said he he thinks he's had better drives, but I think this was probably the most complete performance in a Grand Prix this year anyway. Yeah, he has had a few few decent races. Monza was another one that, that stood out, but I think in the circumstances, this one was the the slightly more uh, challenging one in 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 that regard. But Mark, it wasn't only Stroll who did well. Sebastian Vettel turned in a very good drive, only one point for tenth place, but he was, I think he was down about seventeenth on the first lap, wasn't he? He was pretty much forced off by Bottas at the first corner. Yeah, his, his finishing position was defined at turn one, um, but. Um, by, by Valtteri, but um, he's benefited from that before he benefited from that in, in Hungary um, from Valtteri. So um, I guess this was the payback for that. For, you know, they say, look, comes in waves. So he's actually the the norm now is that he's the faster qualifying Aston Martin driver. Not by much, but it, it's it's established a little bit of a pattern now. And um, yeah, if everything goes in a straightforward way, um, he will be the, the, the team's cutting edge. And I mean, we, me and you talked to the team's um, technical chief, Andy Green, earlier earlier in the weekend, and uh, he was just extolling just how remarkable uh, a force for the the good for the team um, Seb is, wasn't he? In it, and just the the work ethic, and he's actually the way he's uncovered things with his um, the processes of his thought and the the, the logic has actually caused them to uh, initiate new processes at the factory. So he's actually developing the team just through his own um, in, intense way of working. And they're, they're, they're just loving it and they're responding to it. And you, you, you'll see him uh, produce a, a, a drive that gets a 10th place finish and it's just it fades into the background, but actually he's, he's operating at a consistently high level. And it's, um, it will be very interesting to see if they get um, a halfway competitive car next year. Um, yeah, just just how he goes. Yeah, certainly Vettel's good days this year have been uh, have been very very strong. It's quite it's actually quite rare you have two good races from the two Aston Martin drivers. Usually one of them something will go wrong or both of them will be struggling. But yeah, this was a decent weekend for Aston Martin, and yeah, both managed to get good results. But Mark. It was a slightly subdued Ferrari weekend, you'd say, by recent standards. Carlos Sainz seventh, Charles Leclerc eighth. Both of them also did the uh, the one stopper. Given McLaren managed just two points for Lando Norris's ninth place after a puncture, that's probably taken Ferrari to the cusp of securing third in the constructors, hasn't it? Yes, I mean, even on um, a not so competitive weekend, they've still scored very solidly uh, with with both cars. Um, it's a front limited track, as I said earlier on, and that just yeah, it wasn't uh, the, the car wasn't in its happy place. But it was uh, you know, they're they're perfectly serviceable team now, and um, they 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 get they they get consistent solid results from wherever the car happens to be, um, on, in, in terms of competitivity through on a given track in the weekend, and yeah, that's that's just what we saw here. And Scott, and on that topic, a question from Paul Blake. In terms of the McLaren-Ferrari battle for third in the championship, it says Qatar felt almost like a return to earlier in the season with Lando Norris running strongly for most of the race. Of course, Norris was going to get a much stronger result before that puncture. Ferrari somewhere behind and Ricardo struggling for form. Is this a one-off or a sign that something might be changing in this particular fight? 
Um, I, don't, I don't think it's either. I, I think it's just that McLaren and Norris in particular were getting more out of the, the getting the maximum out of the weekend that they could. Um, the last three events in particular have looked a lot worse for McLaren than they've actually been. In terms of actual performance, they've been a tenth and a half off of Ferrari on average. Um, once you break down the exact um, deficits that they've had race to race, um, it, it's really not been as bad as, uh, as it's looked. You, you only have to look back to the US Grand Prix to see when um, a track where the Ferrari did have the edge, um, Ricardo was still able to split the two Ferraris. So they've just had bits of bad luck. Some tracks like Mexico, they, 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 were, they were genuinely struggling with, but Brazil, they, they were able to take the fight to the Ferraris there. They've just fallen away in this third place battle because they've just scored so poorly through freak circumstances. Things like Ricardo's incident in um, on uh, the first corner in, in in Mexico, and then both cars having a nightmare Brazilian race, uh, and then they've come they've come here, and Ricardo's been nowhere and had a monumental problem with fuel saving thanks to a systems issue that basically said you need to do a load of fuel saving because you're not going to make it to the end of the race. And then at some point during the Grand Prix, they realized the calculation was way off and actually had loads of fuel in reserve. So then he was basically pushing to the max to the finish. Um, and obviously uh, Lando had the puncher. So it, it's just freak circumstances. Yes, this has been a bit more competitive overall. So it, its track characteristics have swung it towards McLaren over Ferrari. But that doesn't mean there's been like a dramatic picture changing in the background. It's just... Earlier in the season, for, uh, McLaren tended to be overperforming because the likes of Ferrari and Alpha Tauri were un were underachieving, and now it's gone the other way. You now have generally Ferrari and Alpha Tauri doing a particularly good job. Alpha Tauri less so in the Grand Prix here, and when McLaren have underachieved, that's obviously made it look dramatically different. But that hasn't really been the case. So I think this was just them doing a good job with a good car and being about where they should have been. Yep, I'd agree with that. Uh, and a question mark for you from James Harvey. It says another fairly anonymous race from Daniel Ricciardo. Obviously, Scott mentioned uh, a few problems for him there, but it says compared to Lando Norris, what's caused his form to drop off again? Or does this season just highlight that Lando's just a lot better than most people thought he could be? I guess track configuration was a big thing for Ricciardo here, wasn't it? Yes, although I don't think we could take his... Uh race today is representative he was saving fuel by a, a ridiculous amount um because of some something had gone wrong in the software he was having to drive two seconds off the pace just to stay on um what the the system was saying he needed to do on on fuel so you can forget the day as any sort of represent but he again he was he was struggling a little bit in qualifying yes and um yeah if you if you're not quite getting the the rotation on the car right in terms of your, your, how you're um, overlapping the braking and the, the, the cornering phase, then a circuit like this that interconnects one corner to another is going to punish you hard. It's You get it wrong initially, and it, you'll, you'll keep getting it wrong through the whole sequence. So, um, yeah, not ideally configured. It, this, the, the ghost of that problem is still there for them. It, it's, it, it varies according to track layout and grip and what have you, but... Um, and it can go, it can can go very well. I don't think it's because people underrated Lando. I think everybody understood by last year exactly how good Lando was. Um, but Daniel was definitely operating in a similar sort of level to Lando. 
at, at least last year. So no, it's it's a shortfall on Daniel's performance this year in that particular car. It's not any underrating of Lando. Lando's, um, you know, an elite driver and and was by the end of last year anyway. So, uh, yeah, still still question marks about Daniel this year, definitely. Yeah, I think next year we'll start to see the fairest comparison between the two, but. Norris is going to take quite some beating, no question, because he's had a really strong season, even though recent results haven't been great. Just four points for McLaren in the last three races across this triple header. Been, uh, yeah, very, very uh, difficult run for them. Uh, we should talk about Alpha Tauri, Mark, because Pierre Gasly started on the front row. He was then basically never seen again after his first pit stop. So what happened to him and teammate Yuki Tsunoda, for that matter, because he was up in Q3 again, just outside the points. The Alpha Tauri was just a disaster on the front, um, on the soft tyre in particular, in the front left, and um, with Pierre in particular. And the way he um, responded to the uh, worsening performance of the car was to try harder and then migrate over to a two-stop and push even harder when it just seemed to make the problem even worse. And he ended up fading out of the points altogether. Um, Yuki suffered a similar phenomenon, uh, though it was made worse in his case by a prematurely early stop because a piece of visor got stuck in the wing and it, it was blocking the, the airflow to it, so they had to take that out, so they, they, they did the tyre change there. But So his strategy was also compromised, but the the underlying problem with the car was was there. It was it could do a lap time, it, it was certainly quick over, over a single lap. Um, and, and Yuki continued to be quite closely matched to Pierre on one lap pace this weekend. He's, he's continued to narrow that gap. But there was just something ab about its setup and its general characteristics, which just absolutely killed the front tyre. And it, it was just uncompetitive in race trim. Yeah, it's a strange one, wasn't it? Because that, that front left limitation was quite well known from practice. So it's strange they didn't perhaps be a little bit more aware of that going into the the race and they were able to just have end up end up running the race into the ground certainly with uh, with Gassi which wasn't ideal we, we should just briefly mention the tire situation mark because there were i think four punches in the race all all front left Lando Norris is a bit critical of Pirelli do you have any sympathy with that position or is the fact that Pirelli spent the past two days warning people against one stoppers and to be very very careful because of the wear tell them that perhaps you know it's it's let the buyer wear on that one yeah, there's a little, there's a little bit of both. As, as Lando says, it shouldn't happen, and it just goes pop because you know, you, you, as a as a driver, you you can reasonably expect that you should be able to push hard on the tire, and it, it at least um, retains its integrity and retains air in its structure. But um, there also, by the same token, the, it was known very early in the weekend that that front left was going to take a hell of a hammering. Um, Partly because there's a lot of overlapping braking and cornering here, and that really kills the fronts of the of the Pirellis. And so this was being pointed out, uh, but you know, the teams are competitive by nature, and they're doing their simulations based on performance. And the performance was saying, you know, you could you could maybe get the the shortest distance if you did it this way, not that way. And that that's tends to be where they uh, where the, the, the they will follow. Yeah, so there definitely was an element of risk in that. Obviously, both Williams drivers, they weren't particularly competitive, so they gambled on on trying to run long, and that, uh, that caught them 
both out in the end, but they weren't really uh, going anywhere. Alfa Romeo was pretty anonymous as well, slightly stronger in the race than they've been in in qualifying. They were getting a little bit worried about running out of parts at one stage because they kept picking up little cracks to floors and that kind of thing on the curbs. They're going to be ha they're happy for the last couple of races because they can patch it all up, but they were running out uh, a little bit. Mick Schumacher was 16th, Nikita Mazepin 18th and last Mazepin damaged his chassis on on Friday as well. So I think he had seven push laps going into qualifying. So at least he had a, an excuse for his uh, relatively poor performance this weekend. But Scott, back to the front. Let's just finish this off. A win for Lewis Hamilton. You heard from Toto Wolff after the race, who, who, who was talking up the, the fighting spirit of Hamilton. Do you think that Hamilton sat there thinking, yeah, we've got this now, we've got the momentum. If we just carry this through for a couple more races, we're there. I think there has been a, a shift in their attitude. I think they've gone from hoping they'll be in the fight to the end and hoping they'll be able to properly challenge for the championship to believing they're in the fight to the end and believing they can win the championship. And I do think Hamilton's been energised by what happened in, in Brazil. Obviously, the two wins have, have certainly put him in a very good mood. So... Yeah, if you believe in momentum, it's definitely with Mercedes at the moment. But the fight between the two teams is so close and the the characteristics of the cars, the the track characteristics, the weather conditions, whatever it is, all these things can have such a big factor. I wouldn't be brave enough to, to put my money on anyone for Saudi Arabia or Abu Dhabi or the title overall. It's just fantastic that we're in this position with two races to go. And yeah, let's hope it's a fair, straight fight with uh, most of the focus on exactly what's happening on track rather than off it. Yeah, it's on a nice trajectory to go down to the wire, isn't it? I think that's what most will will want to see. It's just been a brilliant season. I hope it has a, a fitting finale. Well, thanks very much to Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes for your insight. There's lots more where that came from on the race.com and don't forget the hyphen if you're heading there with Mark's race analysis, my driver ratings and Scott's look at Hamilton's recent form and much, much more to read. Do check out our YouTube channel as well and our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s. So after a frantic triple continent, triple header, we're going to enjoy a brief pause, but the denouement of this thrilling title fight fast approaching. We'll be back soon to look ahead to what could yet prove to be one of the greatest title climaxes in F1 history. 